Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, this one's a bit different. We're going to talk a little about two big MI3 initiatives today, probably the most significant since we launched just over four years ago. The first is our first sector-specific newsletter edition called Customer X, which hit the market yesterday. And the other is to come next week when we will launch an AI-based daily news edition, which the MI3 team hopes will significantly broaden our appeal and usefulness to the marketing, tech, media, agency, and consulting sectors. The latter has been a hair-raising effort, but we are super excited about where we've landed and where this will go. And before anyone thinks we're unleashing the machine's carte blanche, Nothing Zip Zero gets published without oversight and approval from MI3 editors. More on that a bit later. But once we get through these gratuitous and I promise short MI3 plugs, we're going to talk to our launch partners who have joined us on these two initiatives about the broader developments they're seeing across the diverse sectors they operate in. And boy, there's a lot happening. Coles 360 General Manager Paul Brooks, Cap Gemini's APAC Chief Marketing and Communications Officer Tracy Gawthorne, Think News Brands CEO Vanessa Lyons and Salesforce APAC CMO Leandro Perez are on the mics today, along with my colleague Andrew Birmingham, who's MI3's editor covering CX, MarTech, Ecom and AI, and who led yesterday's launch of our super swanky newsletter edition, Customer X. Andrew, Birmingham, to you first on why Customer X. It's, it's quite telling, isn't it, that since you joined MI3 in January, that some of our biggest stories this year have been on how B2B and B2C companies are managing transformation programs and their investments around customer strategy, CX, data, talent capabilities, and the tech deployments to, to facilitate all this. It's a real hotspot of interest among marketing teams and the broader media, tech, and agency sectors. So, so Bermo, as I've already gone there, so maybe tell us uh, why why this area is so hot and what your plans are for Customer X and what you'll be covering. And welcome to the, for, for the first time, Bermo, on the mics. Thank you very much. Yeah, so the um, at the heart of it, a central premise of, of MarTech and AdTech and CRM is that brands believe they can discern the intent of one buyer out of a billion in a millisecond. That's the, the great promise. Yeah, the, the choice of the name Customer X was very deliberate. You know, marketers are striving not just to identify customers, but also to really to, to better understand them. And the reality is, in many ways, they're going backwards. And that's not a function of the tech. The tech keeps improving. Uh, it's a function of things beyond their control. So you've got cookie deprecation. We've got new privacy rules coming in Australia and around the world. And frankly, we've got consumers who are better educated about what's actually going on in the background. So you have all that. And then on the other hand, you have this extraordinary MarTech ecosystem that's emerged over the last 25 years, but especially during the first half of the last decade when we saw some really kind of big transformational deals. So we had um, you know, Salesforce buying Target. We had Adobe buying um, Omniture with this big surge in, in consolidation in that market in the middle of the last decade. And so, you know, you get the, the Scott Brinker chief MarTech ecosystem from you know, seven or eight years ago being 80 companies. So I think he's up over 10,000. Uh, today. Um, so we've now arrived at a point where the analysts say the brands are spending more on technology uh, than they're spending on, you know, inverted commas marketing. And there's a real question about whether that's starting to, to get out of balance. And that's a really live debate at the moment. So there's a big issue. There's a lot of spending around uh, during the COVID period, around upgrading of um, you know, e-com CX systems. 
And then there's a lot of evaluation about that. So that's a, a live issue with the, the audience. And then one of the other big ones, which we'll cover a lot in, uh, in Customer X, is the whole story of personalization. So um, my view as somebody who's written about this for 10 years is that personalization is actually starting to deliver. I was pretty skeptical if you go back a couple of years ago because a lot of those personalization pitches, I think, were a um, solution looking for a problem. Um, what the audience wanted was fast, simple, and easy. They didn't want personalization. Personalization now has evolved to be a bit more aligned to what I think consumers want that to be, basically. Getting into the reads, we saw a remarkable response to our CDP investigation this year. Um, that uh, The first piece in that CDP one was, I think it's one of the top five stories of the year. For our listeners who don't know what a CDP is, it's a customer data platform. We just got to make sure we don't get too too caught up in ourselves here, but customer data platform, it's very important play, but keep going, Bermo. Uh, yeah, well, it's a great example of how quickly new technologies can take hold. So, But it's also a cautionary tale uh, about you know, whether you really need that shiny new bauble. And you know, what we looked at when we, got, when we got into this sort of market was there are very clear examples of the kind of companies who get enormous benefits out of a customer data platform. But there's an awful lot of other organizations who have uh, use cases around media optimization who could probably achieve 90% of what they want to do using existing MarTech. So they're the kinds of issues. We really were going to get into the reads with a lot of the stuff. Um, you know, the, um, then there's the whole issue of generative AI, which I won't go into now because we'll be talking about that a little bit later. Um, but that is obviously that that's the story of the year and the extraordinary progress around generative AI from what is November 30 last year when ChatGPT was let loose in the world or the broader world to where we are today. And you, you know, to try and imagine what that looks like in you know three or four years' time, that's going to be a, an interesting sort of area of coverage. So the first edition has really reflected a lot of these issues. Like the, the big feature article is looking at big set-piece um, CX transformation programs. And we've got brands like Blackmore's, Country Road, Village Roadshow, Compass Group, and their transformation leaders talking about um, what's involved in those projects, what the customer impact is of the project, and how that customer impact translates to the bottom line, which is you know, ultimately really important. There's some great vignettes in there. So Michael Fagan, who's the transformation boss of uh, Village Roadshow, has a great little trick that he pulls when um, they're looking at doing a, a, a large change. He'll ring up the head of digital or the head, head of IT and he'll say to them, yeah, but what can you do for me by five o'clock this afternoon? But it, it's a very deliberate strategy to say, what can you do without spending any money, without changing any code, without um, hiring any people to get people focused? So the stories are full of things like that. Um, there's a great generative AI story uh, from a, a software company. It's a, more of the infrastructure, IT infrastructure world, uh, they do sort of uh, low-code, no-code. But what the marketing ops manager did, who's an engineer by trade, is he actually built a reactivation campaign on a large language model, and he pulled all the data in from the uh, the CRM systems, the marketing tech systems, he pulled a whole bunch of external intelligence in from Forrester and from Gartner, and uh, by applying that uh, model to uh, sales or accounts that were marked as loss in the uh, Salesforce CRM, they were able to reactivate $6 million worth of pipeline in a couple of months. And it's a, it's a great example of um, how the technology is being applied in really kind of practical ways at the moment. Um, and we've also got some great data from uh, Zenith about the um, uh, shopping expectations for Christmas, particularly with regards to offline versus online and how online influences offline. So that, that's, that's the approach we're taking. 
Right. Yeah, well, it's a great bridge, really, um, uh, Bermo, to to uh, Paul Brooks uh, in terms of the shopping and the lead up to Christmas. But um, Paul Brooks, Coles 360 uh, is the uh, retail media unit, of course, of Coles. You're very young. You're about a year old, I think, and uh, and in, in the thick of all these investments and build-outs yourself, what uh, what Andrew's been talking about, I think you've executed about a 1,000 campaigns so far with Coles Trade Partners across your owned media assets. Um, but your ambition is to sort of help close the customer loop for your partners down to a transaction. So, um, so Paul Brooks, how about an update on on on, on turning one and um, and what it feels like to be so old? Welcome, Paul Brooks. <laughs> I continuously feel old, Paul. Uh, yeah, look, I, it, we officially created and um, launched Coles Three Hundred and Sixty, as you say, just o- just over a year ago, actually. And it's fair to say we we've, we've been. We've been pretty busy. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that Burmo sort of touched upon has been our world um, over the last year to 18 months and will continue to be. But lots of activity. As you say, we've activated over a 1,000 omni-channel campaigns, sort of 15,000 in total across 2,000 suppliers. Um, and what we've been doing is we've been continuing to do that as we started to build up our business for our future growth. So where have we been in the last year? So we started off about really trying to identify and be really clear on our, our proposition, uh, embedding the Coles 360 model within the broader Coles business and uh, building out sort of capability uh, from sort of talent-wise uh, and building that team like very quickly in a short period of time. And year one has been very much around focusing and enhancing and optimization of those 2,000 suppliers that I spoke about uh, and improving the experience and ultimately the outcomes uh, that they get via the investment into our ecosystem and into our channels and our assets and improving how they work with Coles and Coles 360. So year one, I think, has been very much around establishment. Um, And as we look to move into year two and year three, which is our next phase of growth, We move from that establishment phase into that innovate and grow. And again, that touches into a lot of those areas that uh, Andrew touched upon earlier. So we've got a clear strategy that that will help define our next period of growth. Uh, And that guides us directionally, ensure that everything we do leads back to those three strategic pillars. Number one is around how do we leverage Cole's first-party data to enrich our offering. So in terms of personalized and relevant messaging to deliver sort of holistic uh, campaigns to ba- basically meet demand. Let's be very clear for, for our audience that also may not be as deep in the weeds on, on, on retailer media. Essentially, what you're trying to do is you have, a what uh, I don't know how many, 15 million shoppers a, a week or a month or whatever. It's an enormous yeah. number. And uh, through your assets online and in, and in, and in retail, you're connecting uh, brands and suppliers with those customers through your own assets to communicate and see if you can convert at a transaction level, uh, what they're buying. That's sort of, have, I, have I missed that up or not? No, 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 you're right, Paul. If you were to distill it all, all down, the, our very reason for living, if you like, in our proposition is being able to link all of that, those customers with our suppliers with a personalized and relevant messaging to drive sales and growth, ultimately. Got it. And that improves experiences for suppliers and improve better experience for customers. And on the back of that, it should be a win-win situation. And the issue with that is that it's, that that sounds really, really smart and easy, but it's really, really hard, right? So that's the that's the what you've got in front of you. Absolutely easy to say, really hard to do, and very much yeah. a journey. And I think some of those areas that Burma touched upon earlier is that, that that technology will play such an important role to enable that. There's one more interesting development um, from you, Paul, in this customer loop that we talk about in terms of what you're trying to do, closing the customer loop. Um, sometime next year, you will go 
what you say is off network. Now explain what that means and how that advances uh, what you're doing with the consumer and your customers. Off network, what the hell does that mean, Mr. Brooks? So if we think about any any of those uh, suppliers that we mentioned invest in our channels, so any of Coles owned and operated, so our screens, our website, our app, our radio, our magazine, any investment going to that, that's what we define as on network. Off network is how do you start to move out of our owned and operated assets into other channels or formats. So quite simply, how do we look to our expand reach, so reach different audiences on different platforms, right? So how do you use our, the customer and our transactional data and first-party data to activate in different environments to reach new and different audiences? So, for example, we will be working with a said supplier. We will work through a recommendation for that, a combination of investment into our owned and operated channels, and potentially off-network with a potential partner through a global platform or a local publisher. Got it. And we will see that next, sometime next year. We'll see that. Absolutely. We're already doing it to a certain extent, but technology will play a real uh, enabler and accelerator in that as we move into next year. Well, probably, we'll, well, I'm sure we'll see a bit more of that through MI3 next year. Tracy Gawthorne, um, you're seeing this... Uh, all this from from another angle, aren't you? Cap Gemini is a massive is massive globally, but historically actually quite understated. Um, you, you've got quite the ensemble of of um, capabilities inside the firm. You acquired as an Australian creative agency, The Works, about five or six years ago, I think. Um, you've got design uh, firms and lots of others to align with your sort of tech and customer transformation capabilities. Tracy, what are some of the biggest challenges you're seeing around customer programs with your clients? What are they trying to do and, and how hard is it? And, and welcome aboard. Thanks, Paul. And, and that's right. I think it is hard, um, particularly in the current environment. Uh, you know, we all know some of the disruptions and challenges going on that marketers face. And I think that's um, building us into a very pragmatic stage from what we see from discussions with CMOs and, and business leaders. So as Andrew said, a lot of people have already invested in tech. There was a big uptick during the, the COVID sort of crisis. People pivoted really quickly towards digital channels and, and understood that they needed more integration across their platforms and across their data stacks. We're really seeing CMOs look to optimise around that to drive more value out of it. We all know that there's been um, a lot of stories in the media around the sort of underutilisation of the tech that people bring into their business. There's also challenges with where data sits across organisations. So there's a big opportunity we're seeing around driving more value from the assets you've got. That includes your brand, your technology, and also your talent, because all of this means big changes for the way marketing functions set themselves up, the way they operate, the way they build capability, and also how they see themselves across an organisation as really an integrator across a business as opposed to a siloed function. So we're seeing all of that. We're also seeing a real focus on consistency across customer journeys. So again, the digital has really dominated, we see in the last couple of years. Now we see how do we make sure the digital and physical are actually aligned so we get more consistency and relevance across that experience. And we know that having one really good experience through one channel can be great, but it can be deteriorated through something in another space that actually dilutes 
the feeling and the customer sentiment. So the consistency across channels is really important. And then, as I said, what does this all mean for marketers? And I think, you know, with the the interest in generative AI, the focus on technology, some of the challenges that we're going to face around legislation around some of the tech and the data that's coming, I think it really forces us as CMOs to look at what are the things that we are going to build capability around and step forward and lead within an organisation and what are the things that we're going to team really well on because this is all too complex for one function to own it totally. Yeah, I think you've nailed pretty much all of it. Thanks very much for that. But perhaps you could give us an, an example of, of what good good looks like. You're, you're, you're sort of in the market across a lot. Um, you don't have to name names, but um, but some are figuring this out, right? Some are sort of getting are getting there. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I can give you an example of looking at some of the assets you've got and actually working out how to add value particularly around loyalty. Uh, We know a lot of organisations run big loyalty programs, but we see many of them are purely transactional. So you might get points, um, you might get a newsletter every now and again, but the value that you're getting out of that, I, I don't know about you, but I have about 10 cards in, you know, my digital wallet and I don't even remember who they're with. So we've done some work around the world with IKEA, who can you believe have over 170 million people in their loyalty program. I mean, that's, that's, that's five times the size of the Australian population. So what you can do with that, if you turn it into a customer experience opportunity rather than a transactional opportunity, is huge. So we've been doing some work with IKEA around that. Um, looking at how to actually be more relevant through the journeys people take in their buying decisions, in their lifestyle. And in some markets, there's been up to, you know, 37% increase in ROI just focusing on loyalty. So that's one example. Another example is McDonald's. We work with McDonald's around the world and they're really committed to that consistency of experience no matter where you order, no matter where you pick up um, or who delivers your food now, they want that experience to be similar. So whether it's a kiosk, a drive through web, whether it's home delivery, all that technology is now starting to talk to each other properly so that experience can be mapped throughout the journey. And then, you know, the feedback loop starts to build that experience that's much more relevant and personalised. So they're they're two big examples. Andrew, I know both of us could talk about this all day, which is possibly a little concerning, Um, but um, stay with me because you're all over this next bit too, right, generative AI. Uh, one of the first stories you did at MI3, actually, I remember you came to the office and, and, and you said, boom, I was completely oblivious because that's what happens with me in tech. Um, I need people like on the on the panel today to keep up to speed. But you came in and you said, this is on. And um, and, and before most, actually, you, you had a, you had a, a story out and, and this whole uh, generative AI is a runaway train um, at the start of the year. The rest is history, of course, but MI3 is about to make a tiny bit of history too. We, we think we'll be the first Australian B2B publisher to deploy a new service with um, 95% of the work done by generative AI. Uh, Burma, you didn't see that coming uh, when we talked last year about joining MI, MI3. Just a brief take from you on, on how you and how you picked that GPT uh, development early and then let's talk about what we're up to. Sad as this is, I first heard about G- ChatGPT on Christmas Eve when I was on LinkedIn. Well, actually went and had a look, played with the software, and I had that reaction I think everybody or just about everybody had the first time they engaged with it, which is 
this feels magical. It's like I don't understand what's going on here, but I just yeah, this thing is is it's a dramatic change. After you've used it a hundred times, you start to recognise the wizard behind the curtain. But at that moment, it's like this reminds me of something I experienced a long time ago, which was in nineteen ninety eight when I was uh, I was working for IDG you know, on the executive side of the business. And my boss called me in. My boss at the time was a guy called Don Kennedy who had one of those surveillance brains, basically. And he's, remember, nobody really knew about Google. And Google was like the 20th search engine at this point. So there was no particular reason for it to stand out. And he said, take a look at this. And they, they still had that button that said, you know, click this button and something will happen. Um, and he said, we're basically fucked. He, uh, and the, that was that. I'm it took me a while to get into it. And at this stage, IDG was a dominant player in the world. It was the world's largest tech publisher. Pat McGovern, lovely bloke. Uh, he was 98 on the rich list. He'd made so much money out of out of computer publishing. And uh, he and Don, they, they looked at what was happening and they instantly knew that the world had changed. Now, it, interestingly, when we did that story, you talked about the first one. I also spoke to Evan Thornley, who was the founder of LookSmart, if you remember that, the great Australian search engine that ruled the world for a short while. And Evan said something, which I, which I've been thinking about, but he really, he, he crystallised it for me. He said, I've seen three moments in my career um, where the world changed. He said the first was the Netscape browser. So, you know, Netscape came out and suddenly the the web was available to everybody. It was, and it was available to everybody beyond Unix programmers, basically. He said Google was the next moment. He said, like, it's, it, it, and he was in search engines, but he got it. He uh, immediately understood that everything had changed, and he said, "Chat GPT is the same. This is a like uh, I'm from the generation that we lived before the internet, and we lived after the internet. My kids are pre AI and post AI, and it is that dramatic a change." So, Paul, yes, what, Andrew Birmingham, what would you like to know? I'd like to know where uh, the idea of of MI3 engaging with uh, with Gen AI came from. Like, what, what, what was the thinking behind that? It's funny, isn't it? Serendipitous uh, in some ways when we launched MI3. AI was in my sort of uh, agenda uh, right back then, which is why we even went with the content management system we did at the time, which was Drupal. Um, and we did Drupal because at the time um, it was the m- most uh, geared up to, to develop or deal, uh, plug in to AI through IBM Watson. Now, Watson might have gone walkabout, so our, our whole plans were AI have um, sort of shifted from from what we what I envisaged we could do back four years ago. Um, so, you know, surprise, surprise. Um, um, we've now got what you've just talked about um, on us, and it was literally. So it's been in, it's been in, it's been on my sort of agenda from the get go. It's just trying to work out how we did it. Now, um, MI three is you know we started about orig- we started with original content, and and what we wanted to do is we don't need another trade title uh, in, in any area, right? It's it's loaded. Everything is crowded. But what we wanted to do was contribute to sort of meaningful industry debate about the massive change that, look, the entire panel's so far talked about, you know, that's coming at us at marketing and the broader business agenda for growth. Um, and, and the industry support that, that support that sort of, so we cover tech media agencies and consulting. Um, on the flip side, so that was original content. It was higher level. It wasn't just sort of down, down in the sort of s- simple stuff. That's where we started uh, on the flip side there is this genuine need for what we call transactional news at nmi3 transactional news moves and campaigns um, so who's been appointed to a gig a new product launch a new campaign or a new initiative um, but it's hard you know it's hard to do both right um, diverting editorial resource to cover the basics 
takes time and energy and we don't want, we haven't, I've resisted from the get-go diluting that the important work we're trying to do um, to stay with the market on the big important stuff. Uh, and so as much as we've had lots of people say, why don't you do sort of the news reporting on just what's happening in the industry at a transactional level, uh, the things I talked about earlier, want to, can't, because we will dilute what we do with the important stuff. So so what we've, you know, as, as we're talking and, and walking um, through the last 12 months and, and then really when, when you came into that, into the office that morning and did the story that, by the way, went crazy as well for us. Um, it, it sort of reignited, okay, this is how we can do something. And so the way that we can do quality and original content and have the conversations where, you know, we're, we've got to be in market, talking to people, making the calls, asking the questions, joining the dots, understanding what, what various players in the market are doing, um, the way we can do that and report on sort of the, the baseline. It's human to want to know, what someone else is doing, where someone else is going, right? That's that's a human function. The way we can do that is with is to bring in the machines. As you know, Burmo, we've built something that is ninety five percent, ninety percent, ninety five percent of the work is automated. Where the people, us, you and I, and our and the rest of our team, um, don't have to spend too much time on that volume and there's a lot of volume there there's a lot of interest in it but there's a lot of volume it'll distract us we don't have to spend much time on it so that's kind of in a nutshell um why we've got to where we are now i was very skeptical when it was sort of first presented in delhi um and yeah journalists which in a secret hate rewriting press releases so um when and in fact when we first the first thing we did on gpt was like feeding press releases into the thing to see if it could take that job away from us and we came to a conclusion in about three minutes that, no, we couldn't. It didn't actually save a lot of time. Um, it took a journal. A good journalist can kind of write some good copy and get the thing up there in about the time that it takes you to fix all the problems with GPT. Um, so what struck me when I, when I use the model we've got here is it's really good on the base copy idea. So it, it's much better than the experience we had seven or eight months ago with GPT. Um, it's pretty good on the headlines. It's not there yet. Um, it's pretty good at doing the thing we always uh, train young journalists to do with a press release, which is look at a quote and think to yourself, would a human being actually say this? And the answer is no, human beings don't say things like, I'm profoundly proud to be here and doing this in this very agile way. So it does that really well. Um, and, you know, images, a bit of a work to go, but um, better than where it was. So it, it's got to the stage now where uh, when we did the test recently, um, yeah, one of, one of the guys, someone on the team can probably put through about 10 to 15 releases in an hour um, and you're actually doing the more interesting bit which is actually adding a bit more fun to the release um, and so it's got to me it's it's not there yet but it's a it's a long way towards being there Doesn't well this is the whole point isn't it andrew it's it's like literally i mean we are um you, you know this is why we we have to have editor oversight and we will uh and i think you know i think by you know when when the market sees what what comes to on november one we'll launch this uh we are well and truly into a combination of machines and humans that will will um deliver a product that, by the way, you know, if we ingest something now, a media release we ingest now into the platform we've built, uh, it will convert to um, a very decent bit of copy that's probably 90% there in three and a half minutes. We add an image to uh, an AI-generated image and that adds another couple of minutes to it. And then with the editor oversight, we are at sort of 99% because even with humans, um, you know, you don't get to 100%. Sorry, um, sorry, Burmo, you're not that good. Um, but at, at um, with the human and machines, we are are massively efficient. We can deal with huge amounts of volume. And I've spoken with this actually with uh, Leandro at Salesforce and how he's using it. And it's, I think we've, you know, 
Leandro and I are aligned on this, which might surprise him. Um, there's some really good, um, really good uh, efficiencies to be had here, and that's what what we're, we're discovering now. Um, I it's enough from us, Andrew. We have talked way too long. Vanessa, um, you're running uh, the industry body that um, represents sort of news media publishers and mastheads that own uh, things like the Australian Finance Review, the Australian, the City Morning Herald, the Age, the West Australian, um, just to name a few, the Daily Telegraph, Herald Sun. Uh, and your audience measurement uh, even covers, well, I'm, you know, very impressed with this one, covers things like Apple News and, and Google News, right? AI is obviously high on the agenda of these mastheads, but I'd say like MI3, albeit at a much grander and more influential scale than us, uh, the ambition for your members is to have the machines help free up human journos to do what they what they do best. Give us your take on things, Vanessa, and, and, and welcome. Thanks, Paul. And um, yeah, I guess first and foremost, congrats on this new service offering. It's pretty exciting times to see the meld come to life. Um, I think from our perspective, we all know that news media, whether that be in a print or digital form, but journalism in particular is the heartbeat of our daily agenda. We know Aussies turn to news to be the gold standard, the authoritative insight and inspiration aspect. So we know journalism, and when I say journalism, whether that be human or um, in other respects, it covers those real impactful moments, whether it's a story, an angle, different content types, the breadth and depth it provides to provide comprehensive storytelling is pretty impressive. I guess where we're going with this is fast news with MI3 and us. It's nice to see that we're united to improve this ecosystem and make sure that even with generative AI, we're still a trusted advisor it's just more seamless distribution, um, which is what Aussies want, right? So super important that we embrace generative AI in and in many respects where it makes sense in the ecosystem. What I would honestly say, though, and you've already hit on it, we need to remember that the core component of journalism is a human element. It's the investigative impact and aspect. And you can't replace that integrity and authenticity through a through a module, you need the human interaction um, and the human oversight that really commits to making sure that things are analysed, reported, impartial, accurate. It's pretty crucial role that humans and journalists play. And so, whilst there's a good baseline of AI to streamline activity and content, the responsible fact checking, framing, and authorising content has to remain human journalism. Paul, can I just jump in there? Vanessa, I saw something really interesting coming out. I think it's coming out of News Corp, which is the application of this stuff in regional publishing. Now, regional mm-hmm. newspapers have always suffered from having small news teams, but the idea of being able to kind of apply a, a co-pilot to those small, that struck me as a really kind of interesting area to really improve that kind of local journalism as well. That's right, and I, I guess that is to the point, and, and you guys yourselves, with the introduction of Fast News, it's about improving the distribution chain, right, to make this more seamless for a user at the end of the day or the audience who's trying to embrace it. Um, so it's nice to see people are finding the right avenues in a responsible way. 
Yes, great. And look, we're going to have a lot more conversation through through the coming months on this as, as we evolve. I think the important thing is that what we've got at the top of uh, Fast News is this is an evolving AI project from MI3's editors. And I think that's an important thing. It is not fixed from the get-go. We've got, you know, this is a fixed and it and, and, and we've got our, our act together. We will improve the basics are there. The basics are right. Uh, it's, it's feeding a fundamental human need to know something. Um, and we are there on that. And then uh, it's the start of what we will do in conjunction with, with with human editors because I think, you know, uh, Andrew and I were talking about this and, and, and in fact, Leandro and I have been talking about it as well is that there is, um, you know, there's the good thing for, for journos um, is that there is a job for, there's always a job for good ones even with the machines because machines can't yet, probably can't for at least, you know, three and a half minutes. Um, call someone, go to someone, have a conversation, engage and work through um, the nuance that 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 we have is in our industry and so forth. So, uh, Leandro, we might go to you because we're running out of time, but um, sort of everything we've talked about so far, right through from customer X, right through to now what we're talking, is in your wheelhouse too. Um, given your name, your surname is alphabetically the last on the panel, you're going to bring this one home for us. Um, now, AI is clearly sort of a massive play for Salesforce in a, in a different context to to Vanessa and news media. But like Vanessa, you you, you asked some pretty hard questions uh, of us, of MI3, when we started talking about this and partnering with it is, um, you know, would, one, would any MI3 journalists lose their jobs? How was the editor human oversight going to work? Maybe it was payback for the very questions I've asked you and around what Salesforce's tech has been doing. Um, but um, but you are deploying it quite extensively and, and you argue quite robustly that even uh, your APAC marketing team uh, human resources won't deplete. Uh, now it's my turn uh, to get to ask you why so and how and welcome and to bringing this thing home. Thank you, Paul. And uh, definitely could have talked about all the other topics before. So I feel like we definitely need to bring this gang back together to talk about CDPs and offline and online and all the experiences, very passionate about all those things. Um, I definitely did enjoy grilling you as you grilled me on all these topics uh, in the past. But it's, um, it's, it's exactly how we're thinking at Salesforce. We actually have a campaign in market right, right now called Ask More of AI. And what that means is while we're terribly excited, right now AI is a little bit of the wild, wild west, right, where you don't know what you don't know about what you're putting into these LLMs. So I guess for us, it starts with understanding, right, which is why I asked all the questions of you of how you were deploying it, right? So is it just the tech? Are you thinking about Obviously, the, the privacy of the data that you're getting is, is it, do you own this data? Can you use it? Is there a human in the middle? And so they were the questions I was asking you, but they're the questions that our customers are asking us as well. So internally um, at, at Salesforce, we, we are deploying it in a few different ways. So I've got two hats here, obviously the Salesforce hat that, you know, we sell to our customers, but also a CMO of the region, how we use it ourselves. And so for us, everything that we, we start off with is ensuring that you know, A, that the data that we're using is, is our data and that we're able to use it confidently and we're not, you know, stepping on anyone's toes there. And so we don't have access to any of our customers' data, but I'm talking about more of our own data for when we run all of our campaigns. And so a typical marketer right now has access to obviously a marketing cloud. Um, you know, we've got our, our own instance of that, our, our sales cloud, which is where our sellers are in as well. But today there is just a lot of... Um, tools that we've added to your point, Andrew, around, you know, how we make that experience better for the marketer. But unfortunately, get a campaign out has become a little bit more complicated because 
in the past you might have had our press release or our post on on a blog but now we work out what are the three versions to optimize that across all the platforms and so we've actually added work for the marketer that is no longer creative and what it is 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 sort of the busy work so i think when we've talked in the past where i get most excited about ai and i think to quote you andrew you know more interesting bits i'm trying to make sure that i give my marketers the more interesting bits to do and that we use AI to automate some of those other bits that definitely are needed. Um, and I, we call them sort of the programmatic elements, like the always on, right? We, we definitely need that. But what I'm trying to do is how do we automate that? Not just to make sure that the marketer has a more enjoy, joyful experience, which I love doing, but also so we can be more efficient and scale. Because at the end of the day, most B2B marketers usually are asked to do more. But I, we know we're usually from our partners in sales or finance, like, how can we do more? How can you go to more countries? How do you launch more campaigns? How do you release more products? And for me, usually the answer is, well, how do we prioritize what we're already doing? Whereas with potential here with AI is, okay, we'll do that because we're more efficient. And uh, that's where I'm trying to steer the ship within my team. Um, and so we're going to wrap this up very shortly, but um, Leandro, just can you give us a, a live example, don't name specifically, but a live example of, of how that's improved in your team? Because I think what you're doing, um, I, I've, I've listened to you, believe it or not, I've listened to you and gone, yeah, we've got to sort of think about that for even MI3 and how the editors and, and how we work with it. But a really good um, example of just uh, of a practical example and execution of it. Yeah. So for example, we, we usually look at existing customers and what products they don't own. So we're always working out what's the next best product to position in a campaign to one of our existing customers, right? Given we have so many sales, service, marketing, commerce, it's a large set. And so historically, that was someone sitting there building campaigns for those different variations and permutations. Whereas now we actually, uh, and we have our own version of a CDP, it's a data cloud. It doesn't just cover the marketing data. It has data across our service as well. And we use that um, and AI can actually predict the next best action. So we have the marketer, instead of doing one-to-one for the campaign, set up the journeys, the potential journeys, and then have the AI actually make that next best action based on a prediction. And so that is game-changing for us because A, to the points mentioned before, and I think Vanessa said this, we want the end consumer, which is a human at the end of the day, even if they're a B2B customer, getting the most relevant product um, information about what they might actually use. So that's number one. But also for the marketer sitting there, they're not redoing that every quarter or every month because it you know, hasn't changed. We just need to make sure we do it once well and then let AI automate that. So that's a really tangible use case. But I think to our customers, there are public ones that we've mentioned. So and a fun one I like to use, it's not an Australian brand, but I know everyone knows Gucci, right? And uh, what's really interesting about their use case is that, you know, Gucci being such a premium brand is very protective about how they, whenever you interact with them, how they come off, right? Uh, and so when we partnered with them to have some AI in their customer service center, they wanted to Gucci-fy the brand voice. And so what's really interesting about it is they fed in you know, reams and reams of all their branded materials um, and, and also all of their customer service transcripts of how they talk to a customer. And the end goal was that they could have AI deflect some cases or automate some of the initial interactions, but make sure it comes off in the brand voice of Gucci, which is extremely important to them. So that's just a really tangible example of leveraging a technology, but in a safe way, because at the end of the day, Gucci wanted to make sure that whatever they were training into our LLMs was not then going to be in all the other premium brands that I won't mention, right? Because that's important to them. That's their IP. And that's 
that's kind of what all our customers are asking for us is if we feed something in, will our competitors have access to it? How can I trust this? Um, there's a lot of, we probably won't have time today, but there's you know toxic, toxicity and bias that might come up in a large language model because it's scraped um, content off the internet, which is the wild, wild west at times. So all of that is uh, the questions and we could probably talk for another hour on that stuff, Paul. We have to do a follow-up. I mean, we, we should uh, leave the listener alone for a little bit, given that next time it'll be less MI3 and more about what our partners have been talking about, because it is genuinely fascinating. We've launched the rocket ship on, on both fronts. It's going to be a really, really interesting journey over the next six to 12 months. Uh, and we will probably uh, definitely actually come around and explore um, all of this again um, together. So uh, Andrew Birmingham, my colleague, uh, Paul Brooks, Tracy Gawthorne, Vanessa Lyons, Leandra Perez, um, great conversation, good start to something. And um, thanks for joining. And, and and let's go. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.